Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and the, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Joining us today for one of his occasional visits is, I'm proud to say, my decades-long friend, the poet great Martin Espada, the recipient of numerous accolades, among them the 2021 National Book Award for Poetry. Martin is the author of more than 20 books of poetry and essays, uh, among them the book award-winning Floaters, as well as Vivas to Those Who Have Failed in 2016, The Trouble Ball in 2011, Republic of Poetry, 2006, and one of my favorites, the collection Alabanza in 2003. Martin's a former tenant's right lawyer uh, who worked in working-class Boston. He is a professor currently of English at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's also a former Madison guy, a late 1970s UW alum, who was a regular presence, <clears throat> sorry folks, <clears throat> sorry about that. He's also a former, Mad- excuse me. <clears throat> We're better now, I think. <clears throat> um, he's a former Madison guy, late 70s alum of a and was a regular presence at Wart's studio back in its early days on Winnebago Street. <clears throat> Though much of his work stands as commentary on our contemporary world, I realized recently that though he's been on this program a number of times in recent years, we've never had the chance really to discuss his take on the social and political environment in which we find ourselves. So I thought we'd do just that. But of course, doing so, uh, could not occur without first hearing from him through his most recent reflection, marking the third anniversary yesterday of the El, pa- El Paso massacre, that horrific incident in which a racist shooter motivated by what he called a Hispanic invasion killed 23 people and wounded 23 more at a Walmart, Walmart superstore in El Paso, Texas. So I thought, We'd have Mar- Martin read uh, his recent work on on the occasion of that massacre, the anniversary of that massacre. Uh, so, Martin, let's start there. Give us a little introduction of what to what you've done, and and give us a read. Thank you, Alan. Uh, first of all, I'm very glad to be back on this program uh, with my old friend Alan Ruff, and back in Madison since I was indeed and still remain a Madison guy. Uh, As you point out, Alan, yesterday uh, marked the third anniversary of the El Paso Massacre. It's called the deadliest anti-Latino attack in modern American history. And again, as you say, a shooter motivated by what he called a Hispanic invasion, but also the racist concept of replacement. Killed 23 people and wounded 23 more. Uh, My Good friend Camilo Perez Bustillo is a human rights lawyer and the former advocacy director of the Hope Border Institute in El Paso. He lived in El Paso. He used to shop with his family at the Walmart in El Paso where that massacre occurred. Uh, Parenthetically, he's Colombian, but his children are Mexican. So I wrote a poem dedicated to Camilo in the city of El Paso. It's about the El Paso massacre and more. Uh, It's about an advocate for migrants in El Paso, about his Mexican children, and about the haunted feeling that it could have been us. So the poem is called The Faces We Envision in the Scrapbook of the Dead for Camilo Perez Bustillo and the city of El Paso. A freak fall, you said. 
a bad landing, you said. A Colombian from Queens always wandering a map of unknown places. The tumble down the stairs of the brownstone in Brooklyn ripped your knees from their moorings, ruptured both quadriceps, and in the whirlwind of an instant you could see the flash between walking and not walking, breathing and not breathing, like a fighter wheeled away from the ring on a stretcher as everybody prays. The surgeons resplendent in white, priests hearing the god of ripped bodies speak only to them, screwed your knees back on, sat you in a wheelchair the way a ventriloquist props up the dummy, and then sent you home. In El Paso, with braces on both legs, blood seeping through the bandages, the bathroom a soccer field away, you waited for the boy you named Sently to lift you up, his arms suddenly thick, your head suddenly on his shoulder. You called all your compañeros the night he was born, jolting them from sleep, translating the Nahuatl name, Tender Grain, deity of maize in the Valley of Mexico. Now, on weekends, he drove for lift, steering inebriated soldiers from Fort Bliss to the strip clubs and back as they balled up dollar bills by the fistful for him, then the garters of the girls. Your girl, Lucecita, crossed the bridge from Juarez to join you, a waitress swerving from table to table at the diner, her mother's name on the badge of her uniform. For you, she scrambled eggs with green chiles. The wheelchair, gone, the braces, ready to go, came the day you saw in your sleep, the day of muscle-gripping bone like vines curling around the wrinkled trunks of trees, the day you could walk with a cane in each hand. At the Walmart by Cieloita, around the corner from the movie house where you would see Sentley's Marvel heroes in their ropes of muscle, you picked out your canes with ceremony, your boy and girl as witnesses, scrutinizing the aluminum bones, the gray rubber handles, the suction cups anchored to the floor, those diminutive spaceships. You paid for the tools of liberation and a roast chicken at the checkout counter. No one could envision the faces in the scrapbook of the dead. You would stand with the solitary man all the way from Brooklyn and his sign that said, Free them at the migrant adolescent internment camp in the desert of El Paso and found your lawyer's tongue as a carpenter finds the hammer, words nailed in the air, then evaporating in the heat for reporters who could never write as fast as you could talk, who said, could you repeat that? And so you did, till the delegations from Congress swept into the desert with calls to investigate. You would stand again at the microphone, thin as the mic stand, to tell the rally of the militia patrolling the desert in camouflage to name the men who hallucinated code names like Viper, who raged of invasion to the migrants shivering in the sand at gunpoint. So you kept talking as if at gunpoint yourself till the vigilantes evaporated in the heat. August 3rd. 2019. At the table with Sentley and Lucecita in the Ciudad de Mexico, you saw again the flash between walking and not walking, breathing and not breathing in the headlines from El Paso. The shooter left his job selling popcorn at a movie house to navigate six 150 miles across the map of Texas, stopping only to scald his throat with coffee or stare in the mirrors of gas station bathrooms, the manifesto he nailed to the message board, shimmering in the mine shaft of his head. The Hispanic invasion of Texas. Open borders, free health care for illegals, cultural and ethnic replacement. He meandered through the aisles of your Walmart by Cielo Vista, another boy who would drizzle extra butter on the popcorn, then came back wearing headphones 
and safety glasses, like a mantis with eyes swiveling in search of prey, the AK-47 at his shoulder, the Mexicans in his sights. Later, as the scrapbook of the dead flipped across screens and newspapers, you saw a face you knew, a man oblivious to the headlines and captions, creeping at the edges of his snapshot like a wreath. He was a bus driver for the city of El Paso, marched for the army and the Chicano movement, sat a few times at the back of your class called human rights on the border, and would raise his hand. How you long for a beer in a bar with him now. How you wonder if your lawyer's firework show of words burst in the sky of the boy with the rifle. Why he drew a circle on the map around El Paso. In the vision, you cannot swat from your eyes. You lean on your canes at the Walmart, close to the checkout counter where the bus driver bags the last of his groceries. As the crowd stampedes to the back of the store with the gunshots popping in the parking lot, and your knees tell you what your thudding heart already knows, that you cannot flee to dive and roll under a table or a storage bin. Sently and Lucecita stand with you, refusing to run with the others, leaving their father wobbly on his canes in the medical supply aisle to face the bullets alone. Your boy's arms are suddenly thick around you. Your head is suddenly on his shoulder. Martinez Spada, reading from his recent The Faces We Envision in the Scrapbook of the Dead. Martin, tell us some more about Camilo Perez Bustillo. You know, in preparation for this program, we talked some, and you told you told me that you've known him for a long time. Give us, you know, he's captured there, I'm sure, but give us some better idea of who he was, who he is. Uh, Camilo Perez Tocillo has been uh, a close friend for 40 years. Um, and in in a real way, uh, he is the primary source for this poem. Um, indeed, you know, you've heard the first half of the poem. Uh, is focused on him. The poem is, in fact, very much about him. Um, so why this focus? Um, I struggled with the whole idea of writing this poem. When uh, the El Paso massacre first happened, I didn't write a thing. I couldn't figure out how to write about a mass shooting like that. I couldn't figure out how to write about a mass trauma of that nature. Uh, how do you get into it? How do you write a poem that isn't simply thoughts and prayers? Uh, how do you get away from those abstractions, those dismal cliches that leave us feeling nothing? Um, and then it happens all over again. Well, I needed a way in and I needed uh, some direct emotional connection to the incident, the massacre. What happened simply was this. Um, after the Topps grocery store uh, massacre in Buffalo in May, there were instantaneous comparisons to what happened in El Paso uh, three years earlier. Uh, there was um, the manifesto. There was the replacement theory, which we'll talk more about later. And so I started talking to Camilo by Zoom. At the time, he was in Taiwan, of all places. And we Zoomed all together for more than eight hours. And so we talked out everything you heard in the poem. We talked about 
uh, the work he did there in El Paso, his time spent there. We also talked about that community, that Walmart, very much in detail. Uh, that was their neighborhood. That was their Walmart. And his kids are Mexican. They obviously would have been the targets too, had they been there that day. And so this is inescapable feeling of it could have been us. And so we kept on talking. Then I subjected myself to this absolutely graphic and horrible true crime style documentary about the massacre in El Paso. Apparently the documentary filmmaker is very unpopular there. Um, and it was very hard to watch. But in the process, I learned more about what happened. I, I learned more in terms of the details that you saw and heard reflected in the poem. Um, and then uh, the first time I read it was uh, at the 92nd Street Y in New York. Um, that was uh, Memorial Day weekend. And it was a hybrid reading. So Camilo was on Zoom and he heard me read the poem. And so it came full circle in that way. Um, and so we, you know, the dialogue continued even after that. There were some things we talked about. Um, so, I mean, I hope that makes clear why the focus was, in the end, uh, Camilo, um, you know, who was there but not there, you might say. You know, Martinez Spada, that day in El Paso uh, is, was but one incident on an expansive arc of racist mass violence extending back well before and continuing to the present. There always has been a both a virulent strand of anti-foreign violence, uh, and of course it's always been intertwined uh, with, uh, with, well, white racism, white supremacy. I was thinking, uh, as again, just this morning about how there's lots of talk these days about American exceptionalism. Um, there's that strand of American exceptionalism in the sense of, of this violent past that, that goes on unending, violence, racial violence, racist violence, uh, violence against the other. Uh, it appears running as a theme through many of, uh, many of your volumes. Uh, talk about that a little bit, that, that, that centrality of collective violence uh, in what we see today. Well, you're right that we are, first of all, talking about a history. Uh, the history of Texas alone, uh, there is a, a bitter expression uh, I've heard about and read. Uh, it comes from Texas. Every Texas Ranger has some Mexican blood. He has it on his boots. And that uh, bitter expression summarizes that history. Um, the Texas Rangers, who then evolved into what today we call the Border Patrol. Um, the very conquest of Texas by those who would turn it into a slave state. Um, the fact that, in fa that the, the, the invasion was the other way around. Right? It was the Anglos who invaded Texas, not the Mexicans, um, as this manifesto would have it. Um, there's so much to say about that. You know, there's so much blood soaking the ground, past, present, and I fear in the future, too. Uh, this uh, Hispanic invasion of Texas, as you pointed out, is now viewed as part of a democratic strategy uh, to assure electoral majorities. And what is uh, startling to me, and I think one of the reasons behind the writing of the poem, is that what was at one time simply white supremacist rhetoric on the margins has now been mainstreamed. When this shooter in El Paso three years ago got these ideas, he was pulling these ideas from chat rooms and message boards on the extreme right. 
And now this notion of the great replacement is something that is parroted every single day, uh, both in the Republican Party and right-wing media like Fox, especially, especially Tucker Carlson. And what makes this rhetoric different is the dangerous reaction it can provoke. It's one thing to talk about an invasion. Quite another thing, uh, you know, an invasion is simply is part of that replacement rhetoric. But it's something else, again, to emphasize this idea um, of replacement, uh, which was popularized originally by a writer in France, uh, Renaud Camus, the book in 2012. And then this idea, ironically enough to use the word, migrated here. And now we hear it out of the mouths of everybody from the governor of Texas to Tucker Carlson on Fox. Uh, this idea that uh, the Democrats, uh, if, we're, if they're putting it politely, the Democrats are engineering this uh, invasion of immigrants and other people of color. If they're not being polite about it, then you hear the classic anti-Semitic element of the same theory that it is really, this is really being masterminded by the Jewish elite uh, to, to bring in uh, immigrants to, to eventually replace the white population. And let's not forget that the, the shooter at the synagogue in Pittsburgh believed exactly that and expressed it that way. Let's not forget that there have been other massacres, uh, for example, and in New Zealand, Christchurch, also motivated by the same idea of the Great Replacement. And now, of course, it came here in El Paso, um, in Buffalo, and it is about to enter the voting booth. It is mainstream. You know, as you, men you mentioned, of course, the um, <clears throat> anti-Semitic anti strand of that replacement theory, uh, the first time I heard it, the uh, first time it came to my attention was in the 2017, around the time of the events at, at Charlottesville, as TV coverage showed a torchlight procession of rightists chanting, Jews will not replace us. You're listening to our guest today, Martin Espada, poet, witness, commentator, bard. Some refer to him as the Pablo Neruda of North America. We'll open up the phone lines at uh, 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you want to join with a, a, a brief comment, a question. Again, 608-256-2000 and one extension nine. Martina spotted the El Paso massacre took place three years ago, but the mayhem continues. Uh, you mentioned, of course, the racist shootings at the Topps grocery store in Buffalo on May 14th. Uh, and then 10 days later, the school shooting in Texas at Uvalde. Now, Uvalde is violence of a of a different type, it seems. Uh, it appeared to bring a, sh but it, and it also appeared to bring a sh about a shift in the discussion. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Uh, how do, do you does it fit in your overall view of what these other sh mass shootings, uh, racist in intent and white supremacist in intent, um, does it fit in? Well, I believe in a sense it does, yeah. Um, to begin with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when the racist shooting in Buffalo occurred, there were immediate uh, comparisons with the El Paso uh, massacre three years before. Um, and so there was some discussion uh, along those lines for about 10 days. We were talking about the Great Replacement. We were talking about 
the responsibility of the Republican Party under Donald Trump and the responsibility of Tucker Carlson and Fox News. And they were being confronted with this massive lie. And and there was this there was this power struggle that emerged over over you know this these ideas. And then Uvalde. And what happened was that the, the, the dialogue shifted. It was no longer about the Great Replacement. It was now about gun violence. And these are not mutually exclusive. You can talk about these issues at the same time, but that's not what happened. Instead, there was this focus on gun violence and of course, we need that, absolutely. There was also a focus on the, uh, the utter ineptitude of the, uh, of, the res- of the police response. It's something also we need to talk about. Um, to me, the connective tissue is that whether we're talking about El Paso or we're talking about Ubalde, the dead, a Mexican, a Mexican-American, that these communities are vulnerable uh, that that these communities continue to suffer, um, and and this is this is the, the the common denominator to me. We shouldn't lose sight of that at all. Again, six zero eight two five six two thousand one extension nine. If you want to join join us today with a comment, a question for our guest Martina Spada. 608-256-2001, extension 9. The work you read for us, the faces we envision, at some level is very much about the present. Right? Uh, what occurred since and what uh, what brings us to the now. What concerns you in that regard, uh, your thoughts on the current moment, the mood? You've, you've already reflected uh, quite a bit on it. But I want to take it a little deeper, um, your sense of where things are headed, perhaps. It would be easy to conclude that we are plunging off a cliff. Uh, there are days when I certainly feel that way. I have a friend from Lebanon um, who survived the Civil War, and he looks around. He's a colleague of mine at UMass. And he sees the conditions for civil war again. And he knows of which he speaks. You know, this is a witness. He, he understands these issues and he is not prone to hyperbole. And uh, he sees it. He sees what he saw in Lebanon uh, to a certain extent. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, we always talk about how divided our country is. And of course, you and I, Alan, are old enough to remember the war in Vietnam and to remember the, the way the country was divided then. Um, people talk about how much um, Trump is hated. Well, you and I can remember how much Nixon was hated too. Um, you know, so some of this is not, uh, not new at all. Um, on the other hand, it, the concentration of, of crises we're facing feels unprecedented. We're dealing with, obviously, the pandemic that won't go away again to a large extent due to a, a certain political uh, uh, a certain political mentality. Uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, so many mass shootings that can't even be encountered or covered anymore in the media. We're, we're looking at what's happening on the border. We're looking at the very real possibility that the Trump Republican Party is about to uh, take power again through the midterms and that they have already begun this uh, slow-moving coup through the United States Supreme Court and other federal appointments made by Trump and his administration. The damage is absolutely incalculable. And this is to say nothing of the climate crisis we are also facing. Um, So yes, things look very, very bleak at the moment. But of course, we have to fight back. We have to resist with anything at our disposal. Uh, We have no alternative but to resist. We, uh, 
The alternative, you might say, is despair. And that's no alternative at all. Let's go to the phones. Megan tells me that Irene has been waiting. Hi, Irene, you're on the air. Hi there. Um, say, I, I hear the, the tone of despair, and I, and I really feel it myself. But, you know, I'm wondering why is it then so many polls that I've heard about lately that seem to be reliable polls say that so many Latinos now are switching or are joining the Republican Party or voting Republican at least, um, how do, how do you account for that? And I'll take the answer off the air. Yeah, thank you. And uh, that's a good question. Uh, first of all, uh, we have to bear in mind that when we hear about uh, Latinos voting Republican, we're generally not hearing from Latinos. Um, this was uh, something that um, one particular statistician by the name of Nate Cohn, um, who writes for the New York Times, got hold of when he saw some patterns in um, the last presidential election. And what he saw was that in, um, in Miami, there were Latinos voting for Trump. And likewise, in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, in South Texas, there were Latinos voting for Trump, and they were voting in greater numbers than um, for Trump than, than before. Well, it's important to keep in mind that, first of all, we use the word Latin. We, we just lost connection. Hold on, folks. We uh, something we have a glitch here in our technology, and we'll be back with Martine uh, momentarily. Sorry about the dead air. It took it's taken me back. This hasn't happened before, so be patient, please, and we'll get uh, right with right back with Martine. Megan's working on it. Um, you know, if you want to get in with a question or a comment once we restore, then you're more than welcome, of course. Do we have them yet, Megan? Well, Martine, are you there? Whoop. We lost them entirely now. Oh, my. Just uh, be patient, people. Like, I'm... Uh, I'm trying to be patient myself. <laughs> oh, it's been a day. But uh, things things happen, as they say. And uh, again, we'll get back to Martina Spada momentarily, I do hope. I'm curious uh, what people thought of his uh, reading earlier. Um, and again, do we have him now? Huh. Well, as Huey Newton used to say, the uh, will of the people is stronger than the man's technology. Let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. Alan, do you have a another poem of Martine's in front of you that you could read? A actually, I do not have a another poem right in front of me. Um, <clears throat> the phone's not working either. Do we lose him entirely? We're getting a, a kind of a yes here. Um, so hopefully we, we're trying to connect by phone uh, listeners, so uh, we hopefully will have it back very, very shortly. We're on. Martina, are you back? Yeah. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what happened. We, you got dropped, and we couldn't reconnect via the technology, but we're back on the old, what, what is that called, a telephone? Uh, the telephone. Yeah, there was some kind of power outage here, uh, and I, we don't know what happened. But um, you know, we—I uh, think uh, you might be aware there's a heat wave hitting the northeast, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some connection between what happened and the power outage, uh, the uh, the heat wave. Um, so sorry about you had that. You started. 
no, it's all right. We got you back. Um, you were talking about uh, uh, Latinos voting Republican, uh, and you were just beginning to talk about that when uh, everything went uh, well. Everything went looking forward to further outages in this age of climate change and extra heat. So, yeah. So anyway, yes. Uh, if I can sort of start over, because it was a, a good question and actually remains a good question. Uh, hang on here. <laughs> you still there? Yeah, I just put in my my earbuds uh, so I can hear you. All right. Um, I'm glad you didn't lose your cool anyway. Let's talk about Latinos and Republicans. Um, the New York Times, uh, especially to a statistician by the name of Nate Cohn, has been propagating the idea since the last uh, uh, general election that Latinos are voting Republican. Um, and you see these kind of scare headlines uh, in the Times and other places as well. Um, and Nate Cohn identified particularly uh, some statistical tendencies in Florida and especially Miami um, and in Texas, especially in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. So, oh, look, Latinos are voting Republican. Why would they do such a thing after four years of Donald Trump um, and uh, his rhetoric uh, that was so relentlessly anti-immigrant and anti-Latino in so many ways. Well, uh, first of all, as I was saying before uh, the, the, uh, the power outage, uh, it's important to understand that Latinos uh, are, are not monolithic. This is a, a huge community and, and not a monolithic one. And so we have to recognize that there are Mexican-Americans, the vast majority of uh, Latinos, or Latinx people. Uh, there are Puerto Ricans, there are Cubans, there are Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Venezuelans, on and on and on. Um, and when we talk about Florida and look closely, we'll see that Cubans, because of their political origins as a community, have always voted uh, Republican because they were fleeing Fidel uh, Castro because they were fleeing a communist regime or their parents fled that regime. Uh, they vote Republican more than any other Latino community. Not surprising that Cubans would vote Republican. But, you know, we're not, you know, this is, this is not a great discovery. As far as what's happening in South Texas, the explanation is a bit more complex, but let's not forget uh, that there you have a conservative element as represented by uh, those who are employed by the Border Patrol and those who are employed by ICE. And ironically, the militarization of the border in South Texas um, is... Uh, a path to a more conservative set of politics. And so we see that as well. Uh, let's not forget, in, in more general terms, that uh, Latinos identify economic needs as primary. Uh, this is overwhelmingly a working class population across the board. And so, of course, sometimes they will be duped by the same rhetoric that has duped working class people uh, anywhere they vote Republican. Now, having said that, it's important to keep the larger context in mind. Latinos still vote Democratic. The majority of Latinos still vote Democratic. Latinos in Texas, Latinos in Florida. Let's not forget um, when we look at the electoral map and see the voting patterns of Latinos, that Latinos voting Democrat in Arizona tipped that state to the Democratic Party in the last presidential election. Latinos voting Democrat in Nevada tipped that state to the Democratic candidate in the last presidential election. 
If you look more deeply at other key states like Pennsylvania, go to Philadelphia where there's a large Latino population, especially Puerto Rican, and they tip that city and therefore that state to the Democratic candidate. And I can go on and on and on citing examples like that. The fact of the matter is that um, the uh, Latino community is still a community in the Democratic camp. Now, with this proviso, that they are not to be taken for granted as an electorate. And to a certain extent, that is exactly what has happened. And because the Democratic Party has not made the needs of Latino voters primary, uh, there has been there has been uh, a shift in certain places like the one in, in, in you know, what we saw in, in Florida, what we saw in Texas. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's an anxiety about that. But I, I do think it's important to put it all in context. Um, you know, we are, uh, we are definitely, we, I say, you know, after saying how diverse the Latino community is, we aren't going anywhere. And we're not as dumb as people think we are. You know, Martin, we're getting uh, toward the end of the hour, and I want to save some time for you to close out with a poem of yours. But I want you to talk for a minute or two, a minute or so, about um, what's now increasingly being referred to as the climate as climate change refugees, as more and more uh, people from the uh, you know well the, well the tropical, the torrid, the the areas of the planet more most affected uh, by climate change uh, move northward. There's already this kind of response that we can see building that, in a sense, you mentioned the militarization of the border. Uh, that's already underway. Uh, but as I, as I often say, we haven't seen and we haven't seen nothing yet in regard to uh, what's going to occur as things literally heat up well i'm glad you mentioned that uh of course uh, one of the issues that's constantly being debated with respect to migrants is why are they coming here and you would think again listening to republican rhetoric uh which uh, again is in keeping with the great replacement idea that they're coming here at the invitation of the democratic party they're coming here from Guatemala, Salvador, they're coming here from Mexico, they're coming from even further away, like Venezuela, because they've all been handed out written invitations from Joe Biden himself. Uh, and they, they actually believe they can get in, so they're rushing the border. Um, I think migrants uh, to this country are, are motivated by the same forces that have motivated people to come to this country since the very beginning, um, they want uh, uh, what we have politically and economically. They want the opportunity uh, for a better life for themselves and their children, as, as corny as that sounds. But what is driving them in terms of that level of desperation, uh, risking their lives, quite literally, uh, is oftentimes the specter of climate change, um, the, the droughts that have hit uh, in Central America, for example, are absolutely and directly related to crop failures and therefore the displacement of an agricultural population moving towards the border between uh, the United States and, and Mexico. You know, it, it cannot be underestimated. It's getting, as we all know, worse and worse every day. Um, and yet we've only begun to understand the nexus, the connection between one and the other, between climate change and migration. Um, and, and then it becomes our responsibility to not only address climate change, of course, but to address the, the very human misery it has produced and to behave like human beings ourselves in terms of welcoming these people into our country. You know, we have, oh, I want, oh while we're at it, because it's, it's, it all ties in, of course, um, you've talked on, you've written on various occasions about the carceral state, uh, the fact that the, and that the fact of the, that the border 
is part of that reg- that regime. That regime remains firmly in place under Biden. Uh, what has changed p- post-Trump? Well, not nearly as much as we thought would change. Now, let's keep in mind that Joe Biden uh, campaigned as the anti-Trump. And, and so he made certain promises uh, concerning immigration. And, and then we saw what happened next, which was uh, much less than promised or expected. Uh, one of the most insidious uh, legacies of the Trump administration is the uh, enforcement of something called Title 42, a public health measure which was enacted uh, ostensibly uh, to prevent migrants coming across the border to endanger us with their uh, COVID. Uh, ironically, at the time that uh, Stephen Miller came up with this evil idea, um, the uh, rates of COVID infection were higher in Texas than they were on the other side of the border. And it didn't matter. And it doesn't matter that, uh, that health experts have repeatedly denounced this measure uh, and said that there's no connection between migration and COVID-19 in the United States of America. Uh, well, uh, the Biden administration dragged its collective feet on this, left that measure in place, and there were countless, countless people, we don't even know how many, but huge numbers, uh, thrown back across the border without due process, without being able to apply for asylum, uh, which is a human right. And uh, therefore, uh, when the Biden administration finally decided, well, you know, it's time to lift this measure, they did so half-heartedly at best, and then it was blocked by a, a court, by a Trump appointee, I believe. Um, and this is not the only example I could cite. You know, there has been... Uh, you know, uh, Kamala Harris saying, you know, putting her message out to the migrants of the world, don't come. Uh, that's not how it works. People are entitled to move from one place to another in this world. And they're even entitled to come here and apply for asylum and have their cases heard. So, Martin, we have, oh, five minutes left in, in the hour, say. Uh, give us... You have you have something you could read as a closeout, uh, some short piece perhaps. Uh, I'm going to change the focus a little bit. Um, this is also a new poem, and um, it's about me growing up. Um, uh, as you know, Alan, and I think some of your listeners know as well. Uh, I'm a Puerto Rican from the East York section of Brooklyn. Uh, my family made the ill-fated decision to move us when I was a teenager to Valley Stream, Long Island, the product of so-called white flight in uh, the middle 1970s. Uh, And uh, this is uh, the the scenario for the poem that follows. Um, It's called Big Bird Died for Your Sins. Barry was six foot six, 15 like me, loading layups and hook shots over our heads through the hoop in my driveway. We called him Big Bird for dwarfing us, for his flappy feet, for the mouth that hung in a grin in all our stories. We called him Big Bird because he would yell, Foul! Every time anyone bumped him under the basket as if we lived on Sesame Street. I liked Big Bird and his white boy, Afro. He never called me a greasy-haired spick under the hoop in my own driveway like Frankie, the clown on the block. On New Year's Eve, Roberto Clemente himself set foot on the prop plane at the airport of Puerto Rico, my father's island. Boxes for Nicaragua stacked up after the earthquake, knowing the dictator's Guardia Nacional would crack open the crates, greedy as a pillaging army if he did not loom over them. The DC-7 engine like a smoker's heart, 4,000 pounds overweight, sputtered a hundred feet above the trees, then spiraled into the sea on a night when the moon deserted the sky, the keeper of a lighthouse dreaming drunk. A crowd kept vigil on the beach. His compañero the catcher dove and dove again between the fins that sliced the waves, 
till the propeller's twisted hand rose from the sea, but never the body, never the ball player, never Clemente, never. My father told me, Roberto Clemente is dead. I could swear my father's eyes were red. I had never seen my father cry. This must be hay fever in winter. My mother saw him cry once, watching the funeral of JFK on television, the black bridleless horse and the empty boots and the stirrups for the fallen. Later, the day after the baseball writers voted Clemente into the Hall of Fame, as the boys under the hoop howled off and scooped up cokes from a cooler, I said, when my father told me Clemente died, there were tears in his eyes. No one said anything, not even Frankie the Clown. Big Bird stopped grinning. Big Bird was thinking. The whine in his voice was gone when he finally said, they only did that because he was Puerto Rican. They only did that because he was black. I used to see the episode on Sesame Street when Luisa Maria taught Big Bird about the meaning of death, how we all die one day and his yellow head drooped heavy as a sunflower. I feel sad, he said. I could have rolled the numbers out like the dice in my Stratomatic baseball board game. 317 lifetime average, 414 in the 1971 series, 3,000 hits, 12 gold gloves, the only walk-off inside the park grand slam in baseball history. I could have called on the spirit of a dead ball player to flood the screens in their heads with the leap and stab of the ball against the wall in right field that saved a no-hitter, the bark of the ball off his bat that fractured a pitcher's leg. I said nothing. I never said anything, even when Frankie would croon his favorite song in my face, Spica Spooka. The other boys would bathe in it. The next game began. I guarded Big Bird. I stomped on his slappy feet, spiked my elbows into his rib cage, ran shoulder after shoulder into his back, blocked shots by jamming the ball into his chest. I knew nothing of karate, but kicked the air every time I yanked the rebound away. Foul! yelled Big Bird, like a song on the jukebox nobody wanted to hear. Foul! This was my hoop, so I couldn't foul out. I wanted to see Big Bird cry like I saw my father cry. Big Bird sniffed. No one saw him sneeze. He squinted hard, but we all knew. That day, Big Bird died for the sins of the fathers who cursed at the dark ball players on TV in the living room where their sons could hear it all. I had a vision of Big Bird rising above the palm trees, igniting in the air like a feathery piñata too close to the spark of a cigarette, crashing into the sea, the sharks feasting on yellow feathers, Luis and Maria on Sesame Street, explaining the meaning of a puppet's death as the nation mourned. Martin. You were listening to Martin Espada. I want to thank Megan and Rochelle. I want to thank you, our listeners, callers. I got to run. We're running a little bit late today, but thank you and sorry about the glitches early on. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week.